Amen. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles uh, to the book of Galatians. Um, Galatians chapter 5. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at Galatians 5, verses 7 through 12. On August 29th, 2004, in Athens, Greece, Vanderlei de Lima was on track to become the first Brazilian runner ever to win a gold medal in the Olympic Games. At this point in the race, or at this point when, the, when um, Lima uh, ran this race, he was already known as an accomplished long-distance runner. Uh, he was the two-time Pan American champion, and he had also won the Tokyo International Marathon a few years before in 1996. So at this, uh, as he ran the race, Delima emerged as the, as the front runner, and with only four miles or so to go, uh, Delima had a considerable 25-second lead on the nearest runner. He was doing well. And he was pressing on towards the finish when suddenly he was attacked by an Irish priest named Neil Horan, or Horan, who I don't even know how to say his name, Neil Horan. Now, Horan ran out of the crowd uh, onto the course with a big sign on his back and tackled Delima, pushing him into the, into the rest of the spectators. Uh, and what, as, it, as, as they parsed together what had happened, they realized the attack really wasn't motivated uh, by anything personal that he had against Delima. Uh, it was really actually uh, a stunt that was meant to draw attention to Horan, who said that, um, that he did it to get the word about the gospel out and to warn people about the second coming. Um, it was, yeah, terrible. Uh, you can actually watch the video of it online. The incident gained Horan uh, instant infamy, uh, being dubbed the Grand Prix Priest uh, for similar exploits that he also did. And while he was later defrocked by the church, his actions that day came at a terrible cost to Delima. Uh, even though he had managed to build up such a great lead during those first 20 miles of the race, the attack cost Delima his lead, his momentum, and his focus to such an extent that he was unable to recover. And through an incredible show of willpower and athleticism, he did manage to finish in third place, three seconds behind the leader. Uh, he was three seconds short of his goal of getting Brazil's first gold medal. And while appeals were made on his behalf, uh, and while he was recognized worldwide for his sportsmanship, Delima never managed to secure that gold medal. It was taken from him by the selfishness of a deranged priest seeking his own glory. And the scandal of the 2004 Olympic Games marathon is a tragic story. It's tragic because of the way the selfishness of one man hindered another from reaching his goal, which he had worked towards his whole life. It was unfair, plain and simple. And while we can't say for sure that Delima would have necessarily won the race if Horan hadn't intervened, we can say that he lost his advantage and his place because he did. Delima was running well, but he was pushed off course by someone who was seeking to get attention for themselves. It's a fitting picture, really, of what was going on 
uh, in our text this morning uh, in the Galatian churches who were being hindered in their faith and in their obedience to Christ by the selfish ambitions of certain false teachers. Now, we've been in Galatians for a few months now, uh, and we have spent a considerable amount of time together looking at the book of Galatians. Uh, if you've been here for any amount of that time, you should have a pretty good handle on what was going on there. You know how dire the situation was. Uh, you know that certain men had come into the church there. They were, they were preaching and teaching and pressuring the Galatians believers uh, to, dis- to, to, to adopt a distortion of the gospel of grace. Now, these men were happy to affirm that Jesus was the Messiah, but they were teaching a different gospel, a gospel of works, in an effort to lead the Galatians astray from the gospel they had first received from Paul, which he received from Christ. They were teaching that membership in God's kingdom was a matter ultimately of our own efforts, that it was a matter of our works, that it's up to you to earn your righteous place before God. They were misusing and abusing the law and the Old Testament to push a distortion of the gospel on the Galatian believers. And in doing so, they were hindering the Galatians from running the race that they had been called to do, much like Haran did to Delima. To this point in the letter, Paul has engaged the arguments that were being used to lure the Galatians away from the true gospel, the gospel of grace. And he has shown throughout this book that the distorted gospel that was being preached by these teachers was at odds with the work of Christ and really with the message of the Old Testament. And now in our passage this morning, he launches into a final polemic against these false teachers, urging the Galatians finally to return to the grace of God, back to the gospel they had first received, the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So let's read what he has to say here. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Once again, we're in Galatians chapter 5, and I'll be reading verses 7 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, this is an interesting passage. Uh, it's interesting for a couple of different reasons. Um, but it's, one of the reasons it is so interesting is because of the, the change that occurs in Paul's writing style. Uh, Paul's writing style in this particular passage makes the structure of what's going on here a little harder to detect than what we're used to. It's not exactly the linear sort of thinking that we typically think of uh, when we hear Paul write or when we, when we read Paul. Uh, this is a diatribe, uh, meaning it's, a, it's Paul launching a full-blown verbal attack against these opponents to the gospel of grace. And as we read it, it, it feels a little rambly. Uh, the point Paul makes in this section is really the culmination of everything he has said up to this point in the letter. It's kind of Paul's last word against these false teachers. These false teachers are hindering the church with their teaching. They're not helping it. 
And he's calling the church in the confidence of the work of God in and among them to resist these teachers and to resume living according to the gospel of grace. So there's a command here, though it's implicitly woven into the text, uh, to return from the error of this false teaching back to the way of truth and to run the race which Christ has laid out for his people, which leads us to consider our main point and how this passage applies to us. So the main, main idea, the main point uh, for you, I have for you this morning is this. Resist anything and anyone who would lead you away from obedience to the gospel of grace. Resist anything and anyone who would lead you away from obedience to the gospel of grace. Now, as we look at this passage, Paul has really, a, he has three words. He has a word directed to the church, to the Galatians. He has a word directed against these false teachers. And then he has a word concerning himself, but really it's a word concerning the power of the cross. So what I want to look at in our time this morning is what Paul has to say to each one of these parties. And so those will be our three points. Uh, we'll see first a word concerning the church, a word concerning the church. Second, we'll, read, we'll see a word concerning these false teachers. And then third, we'll see a word concerning the power of the cross. Now, I don't, I really highly doubt um, that Paul ever ran a marathon himself. But he sure loved using them as an a way of illustrating the Christian life, doesn't he? Running, especially long-distance running, is hard work. It takes focus. It takes drive, it takes training, it takes determination, it takes discipline. It's a fitting picture, really, of the way that we, as believers, are called to live in obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We live or we run in the race that has been set before us, not in an effort to earn our salvation, but as a response to the righteousness that has been secured for us by Christ. We live by the power of the Holy Spirit for one goal, to glorify Christ, to make him known, and to know him. We're driven by the, by the heart of God's love for us, which he showed to us in Christ, in, in that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and saved us. And so we press on in this path of obedience to him towards the prize which Christ has won for us. Now, athletes, when they compete, they put it all on the line to try and win. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 through 27, Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to, to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly. I, I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Uh, the author of Hebrews also uses the idea of running to describe the way that believers are called to live in response to Christ's work on the cross for us. Uh, Brad read that for us earlier. But uh, in verses 1 and 2, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
So here is Paul, again, using the idea of a runner to talk about the way the Christian life is to be lived. In verse 7, he draws on the image of a runner, describing. Uh, but what he describes here is less about a, a runner who is running with everything they've got and more like a runner who, is, um, who was pushed off the path the way that Vanderlei de Lima was pushed into the ro- off the road into these spectators. Paul says, you were running well. Who hindered you? Who got in your way from obeying the truth? It is sobering, I think, to to think that for all of the advantages that were afforded to the Galatian churches, hearing the gospel from the Apostle Paul himself, receiving visible displays of God's power, experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit working in them for their faith, watch seeing miracles and wonders in and among them, that even with every one of those advantages, they were not exempt from being hindered in their walk with Christ. At one point, these believers were model Christians. They were living with a a vibrant faith. But someone had cut in on them. They had hindered them, thrown them off the mark. And they'd lost their momentum. They'd lost their focus. They were in danger, really, not just of, of being slowed down, but actually being led down the wrong path. A path that was disguised with zeal and religious fervor to look agreeable, to look good but which was, in fact, leading them away from Christ and away from obedience to the truth of the gospel of grace. One of the unique challenges of driving on the interstate is staying engaged with what's going on around you. If you're not careful, you can become detached from the fact that, you were, that if you wrecked, it would be absolutely lethal. It would be catastrophic. It's easy to settle in, to get used to the the straightness of the road, to let your mind wander and to focus on other things. I wonder if the Galatians had become so comfortable in their walk with Christ that they failed to recognize the error of these false teachers as they wandered in. They, they, were, run, they were running well. well. What happened? Well, they had become enamored with something else, something fresh, something new, with a different gospel that appealed to their fleshly sensibilities. And so like a driver who veers out of their lane into oncoming traffic because they're looking at something on the side of the road, the Galatians found themselves driving on uh, the, the wrong side of the road towards careening traffic. They were in serious danger. And Paul wrote this letter. and This is a shocking letter. Uh, Paul has some, this, is, this contains some of the strongest language that Paul has that he writes to the churches. And he wrote this letter with that purpose of trying to get the Galatians back on, on track, to, to get them running well again as they had before these false teachers had come in. It's interesting to note that Paul's goal wasn't to, to get the Galatians to believe a, a certain set of truths so much as it was to motivate them to return to the path of obedience to the truth of the gospel of grace, which they had already received from him. In a letter which emphasizes justification by faith alone, it's sort of surprising to see Paul emphasizing obedience to the truth. And yet, really, it's not all that surprising when we think about what it means to believe the gospel and to run well on this path of faith. The Galatians were hindered from running well when they began to put faith in their own ability to keep the law when they began trying to justify themselves with their own works rather than relying fully on what Christ had done for them. 
They thought uh, through this delusion that they were somehow managing to enhance their faith through these works. But in fact, they were stunting their growth in Christ. Saving faith is a response to the gospel of grace, a reaction to the work of the Spirit as he applies Christ's work of redemption to us. Saving faith bears the fruit of obedience to the commands of Christ. You, you run well by obeying the truth of the gospel, not just by taking steps to be associated with it, but by actually putting faith into practice. Jesus told his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And likewise, John explains in his epistle, whoever says, I know him, or I know Christ, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him, John says. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So obedience to the truth is living a life that looks like Christ by the power of the Spirit that's working in us. The Galatian churches were taking on a zeal for works, but not works according to faith in Christ. It was, it was works according to what they could accomplish. They were being hindered from the path of obedience. They were being lured down a path of trying to earn righteousness through their own works, through their own ability to keep the law. They were being told that membership in the kingdom of Christ was something they had to secure for themselves. This persuasion, as Paul calls it, this manner of thinking, was not from God, nor was it according to the gospel of grace which they had first received from Paul. That's what Paul means when he says in verse 8, verse eight this persuasion is not from him who calls you. Paul is calling to mind here again what he said in chapter 1, verse 6, when he announced, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. God had not called the Galatians to try and earn justification through the law. He hadn't called them to try to earn their innocence. That's not the law's purpose. The law cannot justify us. It can only condemn us on account of our sin. God had called the Galatians to something better. He had called them to his grace. He had called them to receive their righteousness through Christ's work on the cross for us. This other way, this other gospel was not from God. It was a lie meant to distract them, meant to get in the way of their obedience. It had no power to save anyone, only power to draw people away from the only thing that could save them. For this reason, because it is God who calls us to this grace, Paul shares his own persuasion in, verse, in the first part of verse 10. He says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. As disastrous as this distorted gospel was, as much havoc as it wreaked on the Galatians as these false teachers hindered them from obedience to the truth, Paul had confidence in the surpassing power of the grace of God. Notice that he does not say in any way that his confidence was in the Galatians to see reason. Nor does he indicate that he was trusting in, in his ability to persuade them, to argue them back. Rather, Paul's confidence, he says, was in the power of God and in the one who had called the Galatians to himself in the first place, in the one who keeps and guards his people, 
who will present us blameless to himself in in his presence with great joy, we read at the end of Jude. Astonishing as it was that the Galatians were so quickly deserting the one who loved them, the God who had called them out of their darkness and into his marvelous light in the grace of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul is more confident that this letter was going to have its desired effect because he had confidence in the work that God was doing in these believers. He had confidence that the believers who received these painful words of rebuke would be led to repentance and would once again resume the course that they had first set out to run because of the preserving power of God in and among them. Now on the basis of what Paul has to say, this word he has to say to the churches, these churches who are wandering from the truth of the gospel, uh, we have two things that we ought to do, two applications. First, We must live by faith in the one who has called us to grace. That means growing by grace into the new identity which Jesus has secured for us. Pressing on like runners, leveraging every ounce of energy towards the goal of making much of Christ, of knowing him and making him known. Our obedience to Christ is to be a response to the love that he has shown us, a response to his excellence, to his mercy, to his grace. It's not a means of earning favor with God. Obedience to God, obedience to the truth, as Paul speaks of it here, is the result of faith, not an avenue for earning a right standing with God. We are wholly dependent on his grace and on his power and the work of Christ for us. Our justification, which is a A big word, that pronouncement of innocence is a matter of grace, as is also our sanctification, as is also our being made, our being fashioned to be like Christ, as is also our final glorification. All is of grace. The second application we need to see from this in Paul's word to the church and to the the churches is that we need to see that when we fall into sin, And when we fall into error, when we wander from our lane, from the path that has been set before us, we can take heart. Not because we trust that we'll be able to see a reason, but that we can trust the one who called us is faithful and that he will see us through to the end. We are all capable, like the Galatians, of falling into sin, falling into error. The good news of verse 10 is that because of the faithfulness of him who has called us in his grace, we also may be confident that he who began a good work in us will also bring that work to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, that's Paul's word to the churches. He has another word, and this word is directed towards these false teachers. So we want to look at now at his word concerning these false teachers. John Calvin has said, that a pastor must have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off wolves and thieves. So while Paul spoke um, an encouraging word to these believers in Galatia uh, in confidence that the grace of God would prevail in their lives, uh, now we see, uh, astonishingly, that he spoke a harsh word against these teachers who were trying to lead them astray. Now look again at verse 10 with me. Paul says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you 
will bear the penalty, whoever he is. So as confident as Paul was in the faithfulness of God to restore the Galatians, to keep the Galatians, to perfect the Galatians in the calling and the grace which he had laid on them, to the same extent he is also confident that these false teachers who were bringing this false gospel to the church are going to be brought to judgment and would bear the penalty for what they were doing. He is as equally convinced that the Galatians are going to fall back in line with Christ as he is that the judgment of Christ is going to fall on these false teachers. Teachers, pastors, leaders will be held accountable for what we say and for what we do. James 3 verse 1 warns, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Paul indicates that these teachers, these men who were actively leading the churches away from Christ, were going to be judged for what they were doing. Uh, Paul is not going out on a limb to exercise his own judgment on them. He's really reflecting Jesus' own warning in Matthew 18, verse 6, when Jesus says that it would be better for a man to have a millstone, a great big stone, fastened around his neck, and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea, than to cause one of his precious little ones who believe in him to sin. That's strong language. But it shows us Jesus' high regard for his sheep. He will not permit those who try to lead his sheep astray to get off easily. It would be better for them to die a physical death than to face judgment on the basis of what they're doing. These teachers were using their influence, their supposed expertise in the law, to try and lead the churches of Galatia away from the gospel of grace, away from the salvation that was theirs. On the basis of Jesus' own pronouncement about such people, Paul says that whoever these people are, they are not going to escape the judgment of what, for what they're doing. He's actually so upset about the message that they are preaching, that he goes in in verse 12 and says, I wish that those who unsettle you in their zeal for circumcision would just finish the job and would emasculate themselves. Now, that is a strong word from Paul. I, I would, yeah, if you can, there's not much stronger language in the Bible than what Paul uses there. At the same time, as strong as it is, it's not unwarranted. These men were assaulting the work of Christ. They were teaching that circumcision was necessary if a man wanted to be part of God's people. They were ridding the, the cross and the gospel of its power, and they were actively trying to lead God's people away from the truth. In this letter, Paul has shown that we receive salvation through faith alone. Trying to live under the law means being cut off from God's people because it's, it's trying to earn that righteousness through our own works. And Paul has demonstrated time and time again in this letter that the law cannot save you. It can only condemn you. Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 1 forbids any man who was emasculated from entering the assembly of the Lord. So when Paul says, I wish that those who are troubling you would emasculate themselves, it's not Paul being vindictive. Since the arrival of the new age in Christ, circumcision was no longer the marker for whether or not a person was a member of God's covenant community. 
by asserting that it was necessary, these false teachers aren't just trying to get people to observe a small physical, physical right. No, they're actually trying to cut people off from God's people. And so Paul says, I wish they would just go ahead and bear the marks of that so that the truth would be known what they're actually accomplishing. Paul had a great, a, a, a zeal, an enthusiasm for people to believe the gospel of grace, especially his fellow Jews. In Romans 9, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, which is Paul talking about Israel. Even so, Paul, we see, had a sort of holy hatred for the lie that was being spread in these churches, which assaulted the glory of Christ. And so that's why he speaks so harshly against these false teachers. I think he would have gladly received any one of them into fellowship if they repented of the lies they were selling and submitted in obedience to the true gospel. But as Paul sees it, he sees that the welfare of Christ's flock is on the line here. And so he makes clear in the most vivid, harsh language that he can muster that this is the reward of those who remain opposed to the gospel of grace. They are cut off from Christ, and they are cut off from his people. Now, it might seem like a small thing, being where we are in time, and circumcision is really not something you find churches arguing about right now. So this, it might seem like this is a small nuance to treat circumcision and and submission to the law the way that Paul does. This might look to us as a little bit of an overreaction. But during our time in Galatians, I hope that you have come to see that this deviation from the gospel of grace is a deadly thing, that it is a serious thing. Paul's word to the churches in Galatia regarding these false teachers um, comes uh, in verse 9. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, which is his way of saying, do not submit to this way of thinking. Refuse to be part of uh, of this new, this other gospel. Refuse to be parted with the gospel of grace that you had received. Flee this. Run this. A little bit is polluting. It leavens the whole lump. And this is really similar to uh, other instances when Paul uses this illustration, such as in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, there, Paul says the same, he uses the same proverb. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And then he gives instructions. He says, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. That means free of pollution, free of sin. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You notice that common theme there. And as Paul calls the Galatians to obedience to the truth, he is also calling the Corinthians to obedience to the truth. Leavening, if, if you're not a baker, leavening is what you put in bread to make it rise. You only need a little leavening to make a whole batch of bread rise. You put a little in, but it leavens the whole lump of dough. Now, leavening is not a bad thing in and of itself. I'm a big fan of yeast rolls. But it does make a fitting illustration for the way that sin and error can infiltrate the church and spread like gangrene. In the case of the Corinthians, 
Paul was addressing how the church was boasting in how it had accepted a member who was actually sinning in a way that not even the pagan society they lived in was accepting of. In the case of the Galatians, Paul is telling them that if they permit this distortion of the truth to go on unchecked, if they say, you know, we may not agree with you, but we'll tolerate you teaching this, he's saying that if they allow that to happen, it will have a devastating effect on them all. Now, Paul does not explicitly instruct the Galatians to practice uh, church discipline here uh, the way he does in 1 Corinthians. If you, if you go back and you read what he has to say in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, that may be because these false teachers were outsiders who had come into the church and were trying to lead the church astray. His goal here really is to inoculate the true church against this false gospel. The clear, though implicit, command here is that the church must resist these teachers and must not submit to them or permit them to teach in any way. They must resist the polluting effect that these men are having on them. The New Testament warns us emphatically, multiple times, to guard ourselves against any deviation from the truth. We are told that Satan and his servants are glad to disguise themselves as servants of light. A little leaven will leaven the whole lump, and a little distortion of the gospel will level the church. As a church, we have covenanted together to guard one another, to hold one another accountable, to be actively checking each other's fruits. God has called us to be part of each other's lives. He has provided the local church to be a means of your growth in Christ. He has given you a pastor to shepherd you, which means that I'm not only charged with feeding you on Sunday mornings with God's word, but with praying over you and with defending you from those who want to lead you astray into false doctrine. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, and there are many different types of leavening out there. There are many false gospels out there. I'm utterly astonished when I hear confessing Christians embrace a willingness to endure and even to associate with false gospels. I I remember, this is not an indictment against anyone here, I remember hearing a woman many years ago at a different church tell me that she liked to listen to Joel Osteen every once in a while Not because she thought that he was a good gospel preacher, but because he just made her feel good about herself. And so she would listen to him from time to time. False doctrine is, it's attractive. It scratches that itch that we have for wanting to feel good about ourselves. Like an opiate that dulls your sense of pain, false gospels dull our senses to the seriousness of our sin. But in the end, they have no power to save us, only to harm us. They are deeply addicting, and they are obstacles to obedience. They are poisonous. We must resist them. We must be unwilling to even entertain them on the threshold of our hearts. If we listen to a gospel that is being preached, and we realize that it is not in accord with the gospel of the cross, we must reject it as a deadly thing. We must view it as a, as a pit viper and cast it away from us. There is one faith which has been received once and for all by all the saints. I know that there is an appeal to messages 
that tell you how you can have a good life now. How if you just have enough faith, if you claim that for yourself, you can make your life better. And then hold up this temporary life as as something that is the ultimate end in and of itself. I know how appealing it is to hear messages that make you feel good about yourself. Messages that make the gospel about you and not about Christ. Scratching a mosquito bite feels really good at first, but eventually it becomes a festering sore. You need a cure, not a scratch. And that is why we need the cross of Christ. Do not be content with anything less than the gospel of the cross. Which brings us to consider our our third point this morning, a word concerning the power of the cross. Now apparently, in their effort to persuade the Galatians, these false teachers were trying to make it look like Paul practiced what they preached. At minimum, they were trying to convince the Galatians that Paul just hadn't told them everything. Uh, That in an effort to gain their favor, he'd left out those requirements of the law, circumcision and festivals and dietary restrictions and so on, that they had the fuller explanation of what the gospel was. So in verse 11, Paul puts that lie to rest. So this is, it'll feel, this is why it feels a little bit rambly, because one second Paul is talking about the church, the next second he's talking about these false teachers, and then the next second he's talking about himself preaching circumcision. So this is Paul addressing that lie. He says, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, then why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. When the offense of the cross is removed, the power of the cross is removed. Which is why Paul says in Romans 1 uh, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul refused to boast in anything except the cross of Jesus, by which he says that the world had been crucified to him and he to the world. Paul treats circumcision in this verse, in, in verse 10, as the antithesis of the cross. Why? I mean, that's, that's strange to hear Paul say. I mean, he had Timothy circumcised. What's more, he himself was circumcised. And then what we read in verse 6 last week is that in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So why would Paul go to such an extent to, to, to set these two things against each other? Well, the reason is because of the way circumcision was being treated here in, by these false teachers. It was being held up as a necessary act which opened the door the door to securing our own righteousness. It was being treated as a, a means to get your own righteousness apart from Christ. And in doing so, it was emptying the cross of its power, which is why Paul sets these two things against each other. It was making uh, the gospel of how we can get righteousness for ourselves, uh, it was making the gospel into something that we're an act, some, that, the act of how we earn that righteous standing. Um, Whereas the Gospel of Grace tells us about how Christ has secured that righteousness for us through his cross, and which calls us to obedience and faith. That's the vital distinction here. If Paul were willing to treat Jesus merely as a means to keep the law, then he'd have had no quarrel with these teachers or with the Jews who were seeking his life. 
the cross, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. When we look at the cross of Christ, we see that it offends human sensibilities in two ways. First, it confronts, it offends us by confronting us with a true picture of ourselves from God's perspective. It says, this is what God thinks about your attempts to justify yourself through your good works. This is what God thinks about your innate goodness. This is what God thinks about your vision of who you are and why you are significant. It is filthy rags, uncleanness, poison, something that must be destroyed. That is offensive. That is why the cross is a stumbling block. That is a message that hurts, doesn't it? I like to think well of myself, and I'm sure you do too. The cross will have none of it. The cross gives us a real picture of what God sees when he tests not only our actions, but also our thoughts and our attitudes. And as he sees that from conception, the intent of our hearts is only evil and only wickedness. The second way the cross offends us is that it disallows us to trust in any Savior besides Christ. No one has ever suffered the way Christ did. No one has ever offered the sacrifice that he did. No one is so uniquely qualified to make atonement as he is. No one has ever conquered the grave the way he did. And no one is enjoying the exaltation that Jesus does now at the very right hand of the throne of the Father. The cross disallows us from hoping in anyone else for our rescue. It bids us to come to him as we are, but it refuses to offer us hope until we trust in him and in him alone. The Galatians got off track from the gospel when they started adding works of the law to the definitive work of Christ for them. One of the ways that modern evangelicals get off the track today is by treating faith as a work. We like to talk about how uh, we have faith and how we are saved by faith, but we talk about it as if it's something that we do. We talk about it, we talk about how to be born again as if it's something that's up to us. Faith is not the work that saves us. Faith is the response of obedience to the work that has been done for us. If you are asked why you have hope of eternal life, if you're ever asked, why should God let you into heaven? The answer is not, well, I believed. That answer will go nowhere. The answer is, Christ died for me for my sins. He paid the penalty completely. He rose again. I have been made righteous by his blood, and he is my hope and my salvation. I know that I will enter heaven because of what God has decreed concerning me, not because I have managed to achieve that standing for myself. It is a small nuance, but it is time for the church to recover the purity of the gospel. Because the reason why people are leaving the church is because they have been preached a false gospel that made faith about them. And when they found it couldn't deliver, they left it and they said, this is a farce. The church must stand on the gospel. And the power of the gospel is the power of Jesus' cross. 
while affirming the total power of the gospel to save, we must take care that we do not poke little holes in the cross which rid it of its power. Our boast is not in the fact that we have believed the gospel. Our boast is in the Savior who loves us, who gave his life on the cross for us, so that we, by grace, through faith, may know him and be joined to him in an eternal hope that will not disappoint. Paul was unwilling to compromise on the gospel of grace because he was unwilling to rid the cross of Christ of its power. He could have saved himself so much trouble if he'd just been willing to make little compromises, but he didn't, and so he suffered. Not because he thought that circumcision or uncircumcision was anything, but because he preached a gospel of grace that excluded everything that we have to offer. Now, Tom Schreiner really nails it here. I've got a little bit longer of a quote from him, he re- but he, he nails it, and you need to hear this. He says this, The fundamental root of all persecution is resistance to the gospel. The world despises the cross, for the cross pronounces a thunderous no to all human goodness. The cross lays us bare before God and exposes our wickedness and evil. The cross reminds us that the solution to the human problem is death and resurrection, while we as human beings think that we can be reformed and transformed with education and civilizing influences. When the message of the cross breaks up the human conscience, we either repent or are enraged as such an affront to our egos. We long for a gospel that commends us, makes us feel good about ourselves, and exalts us. The cross, however, renounces human potential. It teaches us to relinquish our hope that human beings can construct a just and good society. The new creation only comes through the cross. But the cross is not the last word. The last word is resurrection. The gospel of grace, the message of the cross, is not intended to stoke your ego. It is intended to kill it. But in the place of weakness, the gospel gives us true strength. In the place of sin, it gives a declaration of righteous. In the place of work, it offers rest. In the place of death, it brings new life. In the place of thorns, it brings forth fruit. This is the new creation. This is the word that brings us hope. May God give us, as Grace Baptist Church, grace to run this race. And may he keep us by his power from every obstacle which would hinder us from obeying the truth. Let's pray. Father, as I I consider this message and I consider the power of the cross, of how it offends us, it is kind of interesting to think that you can stand up here and preach against the human ego and we can announce how weak we are and yet we're still here because we still want to hear this because we have found the weakness of our own efforts you have exposed the blackness of our sin the wretchedness of the death of Adam and you have also made the light of Christ who is the new Adam break forth in us 
You have shown us the glory of the King who saves. And we love Him because You have loved us. We stand in awe of the work of grace that You have accomplished for us. And we ask, Father, for the strength by the power of Your Spirit to walk in obedience to this truth. Father, we know that we can't earn our favor before you. We know that we fall well short of, our, of, of your righteous standard. And yet we have hope because of what Christ has done for us and because of the promise of your spirit, whom you have given as the guarantee of what awaits us, eternal life with you. Father, keep us from false gospels. Keep us from becoming comfortable with sin. Keep us from treating your gospel uh, in a legalistic way, thinking that we have to earn our place before you. And keep us from presuming upon your grace so as to think that we can do however we want and we can live however we want because we know you'll just forgive it. Keep us from cheap graces and help us to be established in the costly grace of Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.